Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. This morning, we will be looking at a portion of scripture that probably a, a good chunk of people here might not even need a Bible for this particular verse. Uh, I'm excited to talk about John 3.16, but there are verses around John 3.16, so if you want a Bible for those, you can put your hand up for that. Uh, but yeah, so here we go. John John 3.16, I, I believe this is, at least in our context, especially in the Western context, I think this is the most famous verse in scripture. Um, I found a really cool chart for this actually, uh, this week leading up to it. So World Vision, big, big organization, right? A lot of uh, hands in a lot of different places. They did a little bit of a survey a few years ago on uh, kind of the most popular Bible verse in each country as like shared in any kind of social media platform and so on and so forth. And uh, just, I just thought this was a cool chart. Unfortunately, some of the greens are like nearly identical. <laughs> so if you're looking at the map, you can't totally tell. But off the right there, they were able to pinpoint uh, each country what's the most like frequently posted Bible verse. And interestingly, Jeremiah 29.11 is actually the favorite in the most countries. But John 3.16 is the most people overall and most like populated countries. So United States, Canada, Australia, Philippines, India. Um, but it's a really, really well-known verse. So I thought this morning, uh, why, don't we, why don't we join forces if you know it before we kick off 2024. Let's just give it a good old-fashioned reciting of John 3.16 together. So if you know it... Uh, Let's, let's do that, all right? So it begins with, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Equipped with all of the different variations, depending on how old you are or what translation your parents gave you, whosoever and believeth, and eternal versus everlasting and all that good stuff. Okay, um, this is exciting. You guys did great. For a long time, John 3.16 has been really important to the church. And uh, I did not remember the name, but I was uh, talking with some friends just this week who reminded me it was uh, Rock and Rollin' Smith and the Rainbow Man. I knew that from my dad, the guy who would hold up John 3.16 at the football games, right? So up would go the field goal, and there's a the guy in the back holding up John 3.16. It's just like well-known. It's a reference, whether you're a Christian or not, people know of this. Uh, the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon in, in London a long time ago, he actually would preach John 3.16 once or twice a year in order really to remind himself that if anyone comes to saving faith in Christ, it is through the message and the power of the gospel, not through his own wisdom or skill. And I love that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What is your favorite part of that verse? That's not maybe a fair question, uh, but it's not necessarily a bad question. 
And here's where I want to go with this morning. Let us allow God to speak. Let's learn, and whatever God causes you to cherish this morning, that's what he wants you to cherish. I have nothing really new to say. I just wanted to spend some time with a clear description of the gospel of Jesus Christ and allow him to bring something to my mind and heart, your mind and heart, and and have this conversation with the Lord this morning. Uh, So to get into that, uh, I don't remember if I've shared before or not, um, but I used to have asthma. And like in Hollywood, it's, it's kind of popular to give like one side character a little bit of asthma so they can have an inhaler for a little shot. And then it's always cute. He overcame a struggle or whatever. I had like really, really bad asthma. And so it's not just a little puff of inhaler. This was like uh, asthma attacks are where your lungs decide that they cannot work for a little while. And it gets really, really scary. Uh, multiple hospitalizations and things like that. And I, I do have a couple of distinct memories because for me, I was really young. But um, I, I have a couple memories of the fire department coming to our house after a 911 call with an oxygen machine. And, and then we got a nebulizer kind of thing, which is like an inhaler, but full blast. You had to plug it into a wall, and you're just breathing in steroids for about 20 minutes, uh, which is why I am hulked the way I am today. Um, but I have another memory, which was one of, uh, one of my earliest memories of getting to ride in an ambulance. Right, and I say getting to, but it was very much a necessity. Um, but so, you know, uh, this is a picture of me and am- no, this is off Google. Um, so I had to take an ambulance to the hospital to get oxygen and things like that. I tell you that story to tell you this one. John three fourteen has something a little peculiar. So right before the most famous verse in the world, this is at the end of a conversation one-on-one between Jesus and a, a biblical scholar named Nicodemus who's asking salvation-type questions. He's what you would call a seeker. He's very interested in Jesus. He wants to know more. He's asking things basically like, how do I get saved slash who are you? And they have this conversation, which is incredibly powerful. And at the end of it, Jesus starts talking about a snake. Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Uh, now I want to show you something. Earl, go back to the ambulance for just a second. I don't know if you, if you knew this or not. It's, it's one of those things that's like in our culture, but if you're not thinking about it, you miss it. Look at the official, this has been a long time, look at the medical symbol. That is the medical logo. It's a snake on a stick. That's been there for a really long time. You may have never known that that is in hospitals, that is on ambulances, that's on patches for emergency response people. There's a serpent on a stick. The Bible has a really deep reach. 
And so there's this, there's this reference in this conversation. And Jesus is referencing uh, a story from Israel's history. And so we read this, and this is something that Jesus would know Nicodemus knew. That's why he doesn't add too much more detail. But the original story comes from uh, the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 21. So I'm going to flip there and just read that original story from where this reference came. So this is Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9. If you've heard of Moses and Egypt and the Red Sea, this is after that. They've been wandering around in the desert for a very long time. And then this incident happens. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Anyone who's parented a toddler can relate. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Fascinating story in Israel's history. And it, it, we just came from John 3.16, so it can be a little bit jarring. Um, but this, just for a brief moment of context, this is in a period where th- this act by God didn't come from nowhere. This has been a very long and ongoing conversation where God has been faithful and the Israelites have not. And he has come before them and said, if you will not trust me, there will be consequences. And he's been merciful and he's been faithful and he has given warning. And again, the people speak out against God. And so there's this thing with the snakes. And so there's, there's danger, there's venom, there's death. And, and then this, this, this crazy thing where Moses is told to, to make a symbol and to put it up high. And the saving grace for the people of Israel was simply to look up at a snake on a pole. And they would be saved. Now, there's a connection here, and there's an important one. Um, so I think we have a side-by-side of John 3, 15, and 16. Check out this language. So this is what Jesus says at the end of that conversation. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, that's his favorite reference to himself, must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then John's commentary in the next sentence, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish 
but have eternal life. There is an intentional, distinct connection being made here. The one informs the other. John 3.16 is not a complete picture without 14.15 and the story that goes with it. The nature of the condition of the Israelites was dire. The nature of our condition is dire. And the similarity that's being put forth is that if people will humble themselves, will trust in God's way, God's instruction, God's, God's command, and will fix their eyes on something, they will be saved. And I think in here, what's, what's so powerful is the gospel is wrapped up in this, in this description that if someone has the acknowledgement that they are dead apart from this depiction of grace and power of God to save, if they admit that there is no other way and they simply look in faith, that God will save. And so, I want to come back to verse 16 itself and kind of look at this in, in two halves. So I want to unpack the, the nature of this verse itself and all of what's going on there as I think this is uh, popular because it's one of the clearest descriptions of the gospel in the Bible. And so let's look at this first half. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Let's look at that word so. God so loved. Often that is understood to be a quantity, right? Like I can picture a little kid and you, and you ask, you know, how much, how much does daddy love you? Or how much does God love you? And they do this much, right? And that's, uh, from a simple reading, that's the application of this verse. For God so loved the world. Is it true that God loves you like a lot? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does do that. But I actually think it's, it's a bit more of a human thing to talk about love on, on levels, that's something that we relate to a lot. We, we feel like we, we feel and experience love kind of at different measures for different people, different categories. For some, it's easy. We just had holidays. For some, it's maybe not so easy. Um, we relate to love in different quantities, but I'm, I'm not convinced God does that. God is love. That is a verse from the sermon series coming up. God defined love. And the Bible says that he acts perfectly and that he doesn't do favoritism. So what's with this so? Well, the Greek actually gives us a hint. It's, it's a demonstration, not a volume. We actually use that word the same in English, just not very much. Right? You can say, do it just like so. I think it's that. For God loved the world so. 
And in fact, there are a couple of English translations that have picked this up. The Holman will read John 3.16 like this. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son. In fact, Romans 5.8 says almost the same thing. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a different way of saying the same thing. This is a demonstration of the type of God's love, the very specific plan of God's love. There is no other religion that man has come up with that has a story like Christianity. There is nothing of a God who comes to earth to live as a servant, to willingly sacrifice his life for those that betrayed him. That doesn't exist anywhere else. This is the demonstration of God's love. Nobody does it like God. And so there is, there is comfort in that. How do I know God loved? How do I know God loves? He gave his only son. And we, we know that, that that goes both ways in a different part of scripture, in a, in a different part of John, actually. Jesus admits that he laid down his life willingly. So this is not that God forcibly gave. This is that God sacrificially gave, as did Jesus. So this is the way that God loved. God loves the world. The world. I think there's two categories for that. Uh, oftentimes, actually, in a sermon type of context, the world means like the bad people out there. <laughs> Don't conform to the world, right? Take Jesus to the world, so on and so forth. Um, but that's not the, the exclusive application or understanding of that world. God loves the totality of the world. So picture for a moment who might be in there. I want you to put yourself on either side of the window. The world could be them, but the world very much includes me. And I would bet that this morning you might need to hear one of those stronger than the other. So again, let's let God speak. What does it mean that God loved the world? That God loves them. God doesn't think of them as hopeless. God doesn't think of them as lost cause. God doesn't think of them as to be avoided. God loved them. Now, on the other side, God loves you. God loved you in a way that he would give his only son. This is the way that God loved. So the first half is a, is a reality about the universe. This is something true that God has done. The second half is a response and a reward. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loved before he gave. 
God gave before you believed. You believe so that you live. God loved, God gave, Jesus willingly died and rose. Me? I just believe. That's me in this verse. Now, this is the beginning of a cohesive thought that continues to the end of the paragraph. So I want to finish it, but much faster than what we spent on the, the first half. So let's continue this train of thought. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This next sentence takes us into verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So first, as we get into verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That is three times now that the Bible says that God sent Jesus to save We have it in verse 15. We have it in verse 16. To believe in him grants eternal life. And in verse 17, the world is saved through him. Additionally, it says specifically that Jesus does not condemn. If you believe, you are not condemned. If you don't believe, you are condemned already. Hell is real. It is eternal. People who don't believe in Jesus go there. It's funny, that's like an incredibly inflammatory statement outside the church. It's very charged. It's very unpopular. (laughs) And, And I think over time, it's crept a little bit and has, can become even a delicate sort of a topic inside the church. But it doesn't have to be. I certainly didn't make it up. And it's not something to be ashamed of. It reminded me a little bit, um, I don't know why, but it just kind of popped into my mind uh, the the Harry Potter series, uh, where throughout most of the book, the characters don't refer to the main bad guy. They won't say his name. You got he who must not be named. You got the Dark Lord. And then suddenly um, Dumbledore, who's not afraid, will say his name and be like, oh, that guy? I remember him as Tom. (laughs) And then you get to see uh, some characters over time experience some courageous and refer to him as Voldemort. And suddenly they realize this is just a reality. It's not something to be afraid of. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's okay to speak it. That's a strange analogy, but that popped into my mind. Um, Here's a better one. When I was in college, when I was in college, uh, I had a couple of professors that I was privileged to become friends with. And so one of them, and uh, 
he, he was, uh, he had a really weird job. He, he was kind of the young life professor at Whitworth, and he taught a couple, like, youth ministry classes, and he led our small group training and things like that. But I was around him a lot, so, so f- we became friends, but by the time I was, I was graduating and hanging around the school, and, and what's um, fascinatingly sad to me is I got to witness from freshman year to senior year, his theology of hell changed. And we had a conversation after I graduated, and he openly admitted to me being at a conference with other pastors trying to stand up for possibly not the existence of hell. And he was shocked that everybody else believed in it. And I was like, you should not be shocked. (laughs) This is also a very strange conversation to have with um, a professor, friend of mine, but... uh, the, the circles he ran in and the books he gravitated towards and the conversations that he held began to impress on him the notion that maybe there is something different. Maybe Jesus meant something else when he said weeping and gnashing of teeth um, for eternity and things like that. And it was just this jarring thing, but that's not a unique story. But I want to I press into this verse for a second. Listen again to God's order of grace. So this, this comes largely from verse 17 and on. Jesus does not condemn. If you believe, you are not condemned. If you don't believe, you are condemned already. A way to say this, actually, is that Jesus does not send people to hell. As a common objection to who God is and how can good and evil and the the power and love of God exist in the same person, why would God send people to hell? Well, those three statements are true from this passage. Jesus does not condemn If you believe, you are not condemned. If you don't believe, you are condemned already. Because God is holy and he created order and justice in his universe, and I do not always live within the boundaries of God's way, right? God's commands. I do not always live within the boundaries of what he says is right and wrong, both before and since having a relationship with Jesus. I am deserving of punishment according to God's standard of holiness. Now that's uncomfortable. And and it's not common language. And it sounds harsh and might even make some people squirm a little bit. And and if you look at it funny, it might just sound wrong. But you know what's even more unbelievable than God's standard of holiness? God's measure of grace. God's unending grace. God's limitless mercy. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It is by grace you have been saved. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe. That's the last word I want to talk about. Let's, let's talk about believe for a second. So this is the final idea here from the most famous verse in the world. Believe in the Bible never means agree with. That is not an understanding of how that word worked. It, it, it would make no sense to a first century Jew if you were to say something like trying to equate believe with uh, intellectual agreement. And it doesn't make sense anyway, even in the context of this verse. You can't agree in Jesus. You believe in him. In Jesus. The word is pistiuo. Uh, it is a living and active faith. And as the unfolding of this idea continues, we, we saw this. John moves us from the concept of, of belief to lifestyle. He walks us through a little bit of this journey in verses 19 and 20 and 21. That light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. This language is far, far less clear, and you can tell why John 3.16 is famous and why John 3.20 is not. <laughs> but John is trying to give the two examples of what it looks like to be saved. What you do and what you love. Throughout John's gospel, light and dark is a very consistent and present theme. It's from the introduction to his chapter through the end of John's gospel. There is constant comparison between light and dark. Jesus came as the light, bringing light to a dark world. But specifically in John's gospel, to be in darkness means to not know God, to not see God or, or, or any similar understanding. And so verse 19 is clear. Somebody who does not believe in Jesus is characterized not just by doing bad things, but by loving the darkness. The reverse of that then is the Christian is not only characterized by doing good things, but by what they love. The call on the Christian is, is not to agree with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. It is to surrender my previous notion of what is good and how to live and to allow the Spirit of God to transform both what I do and what I love. This is not the place to unpack that idea, specifically how to do that, because John doesn't unpack that idea here. But fortunately, much of the rest of the Bible does. The point is to recognize that in Bible terms, there is no concept of belief without accompanying action. James says it one way, faith without works is dead. 
that verse has become a little bit controversial. I think only if you have a flawed understanding of biblical faith. Faith is a partnership. It is what you think, also what you do, also what you love, also what you live. It's a package deal. And this is true. And we have, we have several real world analogies for this. All of them are flawed. <laughs> but we have some, some concepts of this. Uh, if you take a test, right, you might believe you know the answer, but it doesn't count until you write something down and are graded accordingly. In marriage, you can say whatever you want in your vows, <laughs> but that's not the real test of if you meant what you said. If you believe that or not, that's the next day and the next year and the next year and so on. Uh, we use language like, I believe in this product. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I believe in this thing so much that I use it or I take it. If it's vitamins or whatever, the, the belief accompanies action. One of my favorites is watching a kid uh, on their first kind of journey into a swimming pool. Because there's mom or dad or whoever, this won't hurt, trust me. It's great, you can make it. And all of the hesitation. That's a journey of belief. That is faith in action right there. I, I agree. But man, jumping into the water is challenging. Because <laughs> I've never done it before, and it looks scary. And I'll give you two more, because these are the two of the Bible. Paul frequently uses the metaphor of an athlete or a musician. You can say you have a goal. You can say that, that you are such and such fast or, or such and such a musician. But until you believe that you can put in the practice to get you there, you don't accomplish anything. And Paul uses the metaphor of spiritual disciplines and a lifestyle of practice to grow into who you are meant to be. And similarly, he uses the metaphor of a farmer. That if you believe that the seed and the practice of ground and soil and water and sunlight will produce a crop, well, that seed does no good on your shelf. It must be planted. It must be cared for. To believe in Jesus is a package deal of acknowledgement of the validity of his existence, life, sacrifice, resurrection, but it is also the deeper and more challenging agreement with his lifestyle, with his example, with his mission that he has placed on our lives. So in this, I, I, hope that, I hope in some way that this does for you what it has done for me. The gospel, among so many other things, uh, releases us from, from tension. It releases us from the, the have to, from the endless grasping at straws of meaning. I do not have to please God. 
along with all of the worry and burdens and pressure of what that might even possibly look like. God loves first, and I love him in return. So what's the application? It's just this. I hope you will love God back. I hope you will worship him. God has written a story where he makes it abundantly clear that this is on him. He has done something for each and every one of us that in our desperation we needed beyond anything that we could do, God made a way and he says, will you look? Will you fix your eyes? Will you follow me? And as we do that, the promise is that eternal life actually starts now. God will change how we live. God will change how we love. So as the worship team comes out, let's start 2024 with a posture of, of humble, humbled by the gospel of Jesus Christ and hungry to follow him because of everything that's been done for us. And to keep believing. Believe right now. Believe tomorrow. Believe next month. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ.